Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest just made their feature debut at Fantasia Fest with my personal favorite of the movies I've seen there so far, Survival Skills. Quinn Armstrong is here. Welcome, Quinn. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely my pleasure. So your movie, which we'll get into, has sort of a Lynchian horror quality to it in that it sort of examines like the festering underbelly of the mundane. So I'm really curious about your history with horror in general and what sort of informed your taste as a creator. Well, I I sort of come at it from a weird angle because I was never really into movies for like (laughs) most of my life. I did theater. My background is in theater and, and critical theory and literature. And when I was about 25, my girlfriend wanted to be an editor. And so I started writing and directing these little things for her to make. Eventually, she applied to AFI down in LA. And she got in and I thought, Oh, well, I got it. I better figure out something. So I applied to USC (laughs) and, and got in and left after a few semesters. So I came to film in general, very late and from a very specific angle. And horror the thing about horror is it's such a it's such a flexible genre. It's such a wide genre compared to mm. most of the others. And I find that the things that most appeal to me are I have this sort of philosophy from my own work which uh, which I tell my collaborators is that I make movies that are not about the fear of death but about the horror of life. Mm. And that's, you know, hugely what I respond to in works, you know, like by David Lynch and, and on and on. But even stuff like, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street or something like that has a huge existential component to it if you care to kind of dig into the, the text. Right. So for me, you know, I, I can watch people die on screen all day long and have fun and that's great, you know, it's, it's cool. But to really get me, you know, show me a character who has to stay alive for 3,000 years or, you know, and go slowly insane, <laughs> you know, some something like that, that'll get to me more than just stabbing. I definitely agree. I think that it's certainly possible to do some of those more exploratory movies with things that have um, higher body counts and are more like slasher inclined. But to your point, horror is incredibly flexible. And the fact that all of these wonderful various subgenres are able to coexist under the one banner, I think is something that is really unique to horror as a genre. I mean, there's a ton of different types of comedy, but it, I just don't think that it is the same in terms of setups. So Yeah, and I think comedy tends to broadly have the same rough set of goals. And horror, there's a massive split in horror these days, it seems to me, between what I kind of think of as dark fantasy, which is like Stephen King stuff, Stranger Things, it that sort of world of horror, and even stuff like, you know, Friday the 13th falls into that which uses a kind of nostalgia to create what is essentially a very violent but very comforting moral universe. You know, right. we know how people are going to die. We know the sins that they are going to commit <laughs> and how they're going to be punished for that. Right. And then on the other side, there is stuff like, you know, under the skin, these sort of more experimental um Less predictable. I don't mean predictable as an insult, really. No, I totally agree. I I think that the fact that they have those beats is why people are drawn to them. Yeah, and and there is a there is such power in trash. Like there (laughs) is the that is one of the essential things that I think exists in American art making that doesn't quite yet exist. It's it's happening elsewhere, but it was born here, where 
we have this massive cultural detritus, all this trash that we've been collecting for years. And, you know, you are finding people who can pull out of that trash gold, you know, stuff like Kenneth mm-hmm. Anger and, and um, actually the film we're going to talk about today, but we'll get to that later. And I'm, I'm a huge defender of, of trash. I like my horror either real trashy or real art house and nothing oh, yeah. in between. And I think that that is really interesting in terms of that being the, a born in America thing. I, I think that you're hitting the nail on the head there. Survival Skills tells the story of Jim, a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed self-insert for cops in a training video-style story, and how things sort of spiral out of control for him and those around him when he tries to circumvent the red tape-laden environment that jades cops and can contribute to a lot of the issues that we hear about today between police brutality against the communities that they're supposed to protect, with black and brown people facing a disproportionate amount of this violence, and elevated domestic violence rates by police officers. And I understand that this was informed by your real-life work, which I am definitely curious to hear about. But it also leads me to wonder about what you like, not just in horror, but in terms of all movies, Uh, because despite the surreal aspects and the VHS framing device in survival skills, what's terrifying about it is that it is a very grounded in real-life situation, that if it wasn't Stacy narrating this training video that you could be like, okay, this is a story of a cop in real life beyond the surrealist stuff. So I'm curious if you like stuff that does have that realistic element to it, or if you prefer to watch more out there stuff like supernatural things, things that might um, not be as tethered to our everyday life. First of all, for those listening, you probably just heard my cat, Emily. Uh, She is very opinionated. And we may hear from her again on the subject of horror. Um, Cat-friendly podcast. I have mine uh, hanging out back here, too. (laughs) um, To your question, so I came up in theater. I was a stage actor professionally for years and traveled around and did the whole thing. And one of the great things about theater is that you learn it's so artificial. It's so undeniably artificial from the get-go. And you learn really quickly that naturalism, you know, what we think of as naturalism is just a, just another style. There is no naturalism. Everything is fake. And a a surreal David Lynch movie is no more fake than a kitchen sink merchant ivory drama kind of thing. Right. (laughs) And I think there's such freedom once you realize that as a creator, it really is empowering because we're all trying to do the same thing. We're all trying to, well, no, that's not true. There, uh, there are a lot of people who are just trying to make money, which is fine. That's, right. you know, more power to you. But, you know, for people who are dealing seriously with the sort of art as art is, we're trying to make playgrounds for people's minds and their hearts for, you know, lack of a better term, but, you know, for their, for the, your brain and your emotions. We're trying to make playgrounds that are worth playing in. Not just during the movie, but after the movie is over. One of the things I love about David Lynch's work is that I can just any time during the day, I can just start thinking about Mulholland Drive <laughs> and it is, it's rewarding. I learn things, but I never solve it. Right. And I wouldn't want to. So for me, the surrealism, not surrealism, uh, all that sort of thing is more a matter of how you see the world than what you're trying to express. Because I think you can sort of express most big core ideas that are worth making a movie about. You can express in any number of ways. Right. And you should. Yeah. For this, for survival skills, for uh, my my first feature, 
there is such a strong governing affect. It is the it is presented in its entirety as a mid eighties police training video on VHS. The whole deal, and that was one decision. You know, that's just one decision that governed everything we did from then on. And that was that was a thematic decision, not an aesthetic one. The thematic ideas determine the aesthetics, if you know what I mean. Like what you're trying to say and how you're trying to say it determines the level of surrealism, naturalism, all all that sort of thing. It's a very roundabout way of answering that question, but. No, I think that that's really interesting talking about how your being part of the theater scene really influences that. I think that there's a lot to that. I not I was never a professional, but I also was in theater growing up and I growing up so close to New York, I saw a lot of shows there and even shows that are supposed to take place in present day realistic world, um something like Next to Normal is presented in this like bisection of a house and you never question that this is supposed to represent a house that they are living and existing in and having their own space but at its core it is you're right it's no more or less real than something that is more surreal in nature despite the fact that it is presented as grounded so i think that that's really interesting and definitely is a a a cool thing that theater is able to do and i like that you're able to translate that into uh into your film work So circling back to that framing device of the VHS 80s training video, I'm curious about your thoughts on horror's ability to break the fourth wall, not only with jokes like a comedy, but with the visual language as well, because VHS obviously has this very warm, nostalgic feeling for a lot of us. But movies like yours are using the flaws and unique characteristics of the medium to help tell the story and use it to communicate emotions of characters and stuff. And I feel like even more simplistic and pared down versions of this, like using the camera to to set up reveals, even just like moving around the corner and using that as setup or like to be like, oh, I should be suspicious of this person. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to get your take on on that, and if you like that as something that uh, horror is able to do pretty uniquely, I think. There's an interesting idea. Um, there's a cultural theorist named uh, Peter Weeble or Weibel, I'm not sure what it is, but uh, this dude who <laughs> had this idea of the universal medium. And this was around the turn of the century, and his this idea was that with the digital age coming, there will be a medium that is created that makes all other mediums obsolete. The the difference between music and movies and the plastic arts and all that sort of thing will be erased. There will be this one perfect medium that can do anything and that can perfectly translate the content, the intention to an audience. The that idea, obviously, you know, that's a that's a thought experiment. That's never really going to happen. Well, I don't know, maybe, who knows. But <laughs> but it's it's worth thinking about, you know, now in the age when people spend four hours when they go to bed scrolling through Instagram stories and things like that, <laughs> that's a medium too. I know, right? Um, <laughs> and so I think the idea of engaging with obsolescence is, I think, a really important idea, not just for horror filmmakers, but for all art makers in general, because obsolete forms of technology impose restrictions on you. And restrictions are the spur to creativity. If you had a a machine that could just perfectly translate whatever you have in your head and put it out in the world exactly as you imagined it, then, I mean, first of all, the professional artist would be a thing of the past. (laughs) But there would be no need for 
art and for creativity because we'd just be engaging directly with each other's subconscious. Mm. Like a painter's brush imposes restrictions on the painter. There's only so much you can do with that. The movie camera imposes restrictions on the filmmaker. There's only so much you can do. The VHS imposed restrictions on us. That's why we chose to use an actual VHS process as opposed to using a digital filter and digital effects, which I got in big fights with with some of my producers (laughs) about that. So I encourage, both for other people and for myself, to engage with what is difficult about making art and what is restrictive. Look at what you cannot do and try to find ways through it, because that's how we get to cool, amazing innovations. And survival skills would not have happened this way if we had a big budget. If we had had a big budget, first of all, you know, a bunch of producers would be like, we cannot present this as a VHS the entire way through. (laughs) That's insane. But also we, you know, there would have been tons of background people there, which there would have been all this stuff, which would have sapped a lot, I think, of the energy out of it if it looked Mm -hmm. nicer. So I'm a huge fan of the physical limitations of the medium and the physical possibilities of the medium. Like, you know, something as simple as moving a camera around a corner yeah. is an incredibly powerful thing if you contextualize it correctly. Definitely. And I mean, speaking of the fact that you are all about embracing these restrictions and everything, Survival Skills started as a short originally. And the movie we're talking about today is a short. And so I'm curious if, you know, if that's also part of it where you're like, oh, having to quickly hook someone and get our message out there. Do you think that forces a level of creativity and circumventing the boundaries of this short form uh, sort of thing? And was there a big difference when you moved from the short to a feature length version of it? Well, a couple of things. I think one of the great tragedies of, of 20th century art in, in America is that shorts are not taken more seriously as an art form. I think it the difference between a feature and a short is like the difference between a novel and a short story. They're radically different forms. And I have seen, and we're going to talk today, I have seen shorts that put features I've seen to absolute shame. And it's, and it's really a pity there's not more critical discourse around shorts and more money in it. But that's a whole other thing. That's, I'll, <laughs> I'll get up on my soapbox about that later. <laughs> With survival skills, the short was actually kind of a bait and switch. We had the feature script before we did the short. Really? Short, um, I never really sent anywhere. We didn't do much with it because basically the short was a gambit to get Stacy Keach involved. Okay. So we didn't have a lot of money. So what I did was I paid a casting director in LA like 200 bucks to basically get a letter to Stacy's manager to get to Stacy where I just spoke to him directly. He had been in the show Other Desert Cities at the Lincoln Center in New York, which I had seen playing a somewhat similar character to this. And I had worked on that play as well and and just kind of making the pitch. Right. And then we heard nothing and I was like, okay, this isn't happening. Then his manager emails back asking for the script in one sentence and that's it. And I sent the script. Heard nothing after that for like two months. Then finally we get an email that it, uh, that just said, Stacy likes it. Wow. And that's it. And, I, and we were like, what What does that mean? We got one. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know what, what this is. Right. But he came on board for the short. And the short was, a, we learned a lot and it was really important. But it was never really going to go out into the world. Because right. this story, you can't really do as a short. Because mm-hmm. the tone shifts in it require time. It's, I mean, we 
barely in the 84 minute feature we barely have time to make the tone shifts and some have argued that uh, we <laughs> could have taken a little more time to make them but you know yeah hey uh, i think that uh, the tone shifts are handled very deftly in uh, the future so boo to those other people but I think that there is something really special about shorts, and it's really interesting to see. They're harder to access sometimes, too. Like, you hear about these incredible shorts that just sort of vanish because either they're earlier work and they didn't really have, like, distribution. They were just these school projects or, or like I said, very early things that were meant to propel them into further work. But, you know, I, I wish that they were more readily available a lot of the time. Yeah, it's so. there is a massive cultural sorting mechanism for feature films where you send your feature out and festivals are sort of the first line of, of defense. And the festivals kind of sort you and put you where you want to go. And then if you go to Sundance, then you go to like this other sorting mechanism and this other sorting mechanism. We have a lot of processes to get feature films to different audiences. Uh, Fantasia is, is one of them. This podcast is one of them. You know, that's, that's how all this works. There really isn't a ton of that for shorts. There's a little bit. There's festivals like Clermont-Ferrand in France, which is great. Like the uh, Damien Chazelle's journey, you know, he made Whiplash as a short. Then that went to Sundance and got picked right. up by Sony Classics and, and all that. That's an example of the system working. But man, that is that is rare. rare. Yeah. yeah. As I mentioned before, when you were working on the short and everything and getting the script together for the feature even, um, this was it was really influenced by your work at a women's shelter, right? Why don't you tell us a little bit about where the idea came from and, and how it was influenced by your real life? Yeah, so I've, I've been volunteering and working at domestic violence shelters and domestic violence adjacent communities for quite a long time in education. And, you know, for a while I was just doing like data entry and like janitor stuff and things like that. And there is such a powerful feeling often in these circumstances of helplessness because I can't count the number of times that I've talked to one of the, by the way, I should say, I was not one of, I'm not like one of the heroes of that war. Like the people on the front line, like the counselors, the social workers, those folks are the people who are actually taking the hits. And I, you know, would talk to them on lunch or whatever. And I can't count the number of times they were like, I know. I know this guy is abusing her. I know what to do. I know how to fix this, but I can't because of the way the rules are set up. And they know that the rules are set up that way for a reason. Like if someone is unwilling to testify against their abusive partner, there isn't really much you can do because of the way the legal system is set up. You can't have like cops get called to, you know, the same houses over and over and over again. And social workers work with the same people over and over and over again. And the cops could very easily be like, we showed up, you had a black eye, you know, this guy is going to jail for a long time, but that's not the way the legal system works. If she doesn't want to testify against him, she can easily say, well, I ran into a wall and there's nothing anyone can do about it. And that's so frustrating. And that in that particular case, I'm not sure what the alternative is. You know, I've thought about this a lot and I don't know how to fix that problem because we do need the legal system to function. We do need, you know, innocent until proven guilty. However, I don't know if I'm going to shock uh, your your listeners here, but the legal system is perhaps not super well set up for women and people of color. Gosh. I know, I know, I know. I'm sorry. I don't want to cause any trouble, but uh, it's not well set up for this particular problem. Mm -hmm. And 
cops are not well set up for this particular problem. You know, I've been up uh, over here in Seattle. We've had a lot of protests, a lot of unrest, and I've been I've been over at the autonomous zone a lot and and all that stuff. And there are some people who in in these groups who believe you know abolish the police entirely. But the vast majority of the conversation is is kind of saying the police are not equipped nor trained to deal with every situation that they're sent to. We're not trying to say, like, we're trying to take things off their plate and give them to people who are more qualified and better trained to deal with it. Right. In the movie, you talk, or you even show, the way that they're trained is so everyone is out to get you. You, Everything, you need to be on defense at all times. And it's, I'm not saying that it's justified, but I'm saying that I am not surprised when you hear these stories about cops entering situations with their guns drawn, ready to be attacked, and are quick on the trigger for that reason. And for situations like this, where maybe a social worker or something would be better situated to talk people down and find a peaceful solution as as opposed to someone who's basically taught from minute one that they need to be aggressive in order to make sure that they don't die. Yeah, it's kind of interesting the way that you look at it and be like, well, how far up, like, where does the buck stop? How far up do we need to start this reform? Is it just, it's a complex situation to be sure that you've uh, decided to tackle here. (laughs) The buck really stops at the Pentagon because there's so much, there's so much ex-military in the cop, in the police. The right. police are essentially a militarized force at this point. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's an interesting thing. So we we went through hundreds hundreds of police training videos from the 80s and, and 90s and 70s and all across the board. And you watch, especially the ones from Reagan era, they're so paranoid. They're so mm-hmm. like satanic panic and, you know, people of color are going to murder you and, and all this stuff. And you watch them and, and the first reaction is like, oh God, that's so cheesy. And then you realize how little progress has actually been made. There's a dude named Dave Grossman, who is one of the most in-demand police academy speakers in the country. He's taught at the FBI, all that stuff. His philosophy is called killology. And it is the <sighs> belief that police should be psychologically trained to kill people at a moment's notice and not feel bad about it. And... Again, shocker of shockers, dude is ex-military. Right. And, I mean, God, if, if you get a chance, look him up online. Look up one of his videos. He is the craziest looking motherfucker. <laughs> he looks like his eyes. He's got the same eyes as the crazy colonel from Dr. Strangelove. Dr. <laughs> Jack Ripper, I think. Is, is, yeah. You know, that sort of like they're going to steal our bodily fluids. You know, it really is wild, though. When they're trained to view people that way... You're like, oh wow! No wonder they're they don't view people as people anymore. They just view them as threats. Um, it's, it's us versus them. It's why they can't react normally. I was actually pretty shocked by what happened this summer because I thought what would happen if a big public outcry like this took place after the murder of George Floyd is that the police would do what most cultural institutions do. They would say, "Oh my God, this is awful. We're 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 going to change," and then just not change. Uh, that's how right. <laughs> most places respond. But they just doubled down. They sure did. Before the autonomous zone got set up, I was at a protest. I saw a police officer shoot a 23-year-old girl in the chest with a stun grenade. Her heart yeah. stopped, and our medics saved her life. Not their people. They just left her. Our medics restarted her heart. Yeah. And I, I have just been 
stunned. I don't think if we made survival skills now, it would be it would be different. Right. It feels very timely, and it still is like, oh wow, things have changed a lot in the last months. Like, I'm actually pleased that uh, that it is what it is from mm-hmm. like an old era because it's a better thing to have out in the world right now. Right. If I made survival skills right now, I don't think I could control my anger. Right. And it would be really, really aggressive sort of contra the police, which is fine, but I'm not the aggrieved party. Police are always really nice to me. You know, I, mm-hmm. your, your viewers cannot uh, see me, but I am so pale. I am. So, <laughs> I look like a vampire. <laughs> um, and police are always really nice to me. So I'm not the, the aggrieved party. I'm not the one who understands what it feels like to be on the other end of this. So, I'm, so in that sense, I'm glad that the movie talks about police training and the way the police kind of deconstructs the idea of a good man because the lead character is sort of morally perfect. He Mm. pops into existence as a morally perfect person, the kind of person we say we want the police to be kind and generous and follows the rules and all that. And one of the things that the movie tries to do is show how it's just not possible to function that way in the, in the police department. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it it handles it very well. I think it's a really great movie. And I think that when it is able to be viewed at either further festivals or hopefully you'll get some kind of distribution, people should definitely check it out. Well, for people who are interested, I I cannot say anything, but um, it might appear in the wild before the end of the year. Hey, awesome. Really happy to hear that. People should definitely make their way over uh, to that and, and keep their eyes out if it's uh, still prior to uh, release. But as much as survival skills rule, that's actually not the movie we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about Outer Space, a 10-minute film made by uh, Peter Tchaikovsky in 1999, an Austrian avant-garde artist. This was someone who I was not familiar uh, prior to our discussion, but I watched a few of his short films in in preparation for this and, you know, did a little research and he seems really interesting. First of all, he was exposed to avant-garde during just a series of lectures at the Austrian Film Museum given over five days by one of the premier names on experimental film in America, P. Adams Sidney. Um, He wrote visionary film. It's one of the first books on the history of experimental film in the U.S., and he only saw this lecture series in 1978. And by the end of 1979, he had gotten a Super 8 camera, scripted, and begun production on his first movie. You know, talk about just going out there and getting it once you decide that this is what you want to do. He became bi- a big name in ex- in European experimental film, even developing four film festivals on his own and helping to found the Austria Filmmakers Cooperative in 1982, which is I think this is really awesome. It's all about helping to establish and fund filmmakers with several programs dedicated to affordable equipment rental, distribution, archiving, all that kind of stuff. Things that are really important and overlooked a lot of the time in terms of uh, filmmaking, especially archival stuff. So. In 1989, he won the National Art Award for Film and currently teaches filmmaking at the Academy of Art in Linz. So if you decide that you watch this and you're really in love with it out there, why not study under the man himself? (laughs) 
Tchaikovsky has said that the guiding principle of experimental film is to diminish the distance between the viewer and what's being viewed, to create a cinema that can be experienced as a physical experience, and to provoke a kind of active seeing. Is this something that you were also trying to explore in these fourth wall breaking moments to kind of dissolve that barrier between reality and story? To a certain extent, there's a couple big sort of formal breakdowns in survival skills where the medium itself starts collapsing. And we used an analog process with sort of magnets and knives and VCRs and this whole complicated arcane system to create those. And Tchaikovsky was definitely on my mind during those moments. The way I sort of describe it is it's kind of like a musical in that in a musical, you talk until the emotion is too much and you must sing. Right. And for me, the, the moments of breakdown are you make a narrative film until it becomes too much and the whole medium starts falling apart. That's kind of what I was thinking. It was also, you know, there's some convenient sort of narrative elisions in those, right. in those moments that we skip scenes that we didn't have the budget to shoot. Hey, whatever works, man. Yeah, let's go with the explanation <laughs> that makes me seem more <laughs> intentional and smarter and not just trying to save money. But yeah, that's, that's kind of the idea, is it's, it's another mode of communication yeah. when it's just not enough, when you have to get more direct. So I suppose in that way, yeah, it's, it's about being direct and going straight to the viewer. One thing that I thought was really interesting about Tchaikovsky in particular is that in a lot of experimental film, even some of the like more Dadaist stuff, the way that they create this experimentality to it is by stripping away pieces of the movie pieces that let you use other work as a reference point what like it's narrative it's characters basically it just leaves you with the image and your reaction to it that's the goal of a lot of these sort of experimental films but what Tchaikovsky does that i think is really interesting is he does this with found footage from other movies and archival footage, remixing them and manually editing them in a dark room to create something wholly new from the scraps of these other films. It's this really kind of neat, use the whole Buffalo approach. And even though it's typically applied to mixed media, it sort of lends this uh, bricolage effect as our friend at the channel 83 podcast pointed out when we were chatting about this. I just think that it's, it's really interesting because it also, well, first of all, I'm curious what you think about just this differentiation between Tchaikovsky and uh, other experimental filmmakers in this sort of method of his. I think in a lot of ways, particularly with outer space, Tchaikovsky is actually more straightforward than a lot of experiments. Like, you know, you compare it to like Stan Brakhage or something like that, where Stan Brakhage is, is essentially using pure color and light and form. And Tchaikovsky right. is actually, particularly in outer space, Tchaikovsky is also using narrative tropes and yeah. and using horror ideas and, and stuff like that. So, so I think in a way, like there is, outer space has a story. Yeah. Whereas, you know, you look at something like Mothlight by Brackage does not have a story. It's just images and it's brilliant, but it's a very different thing. The use of, so the movie uh, that this footage comes from is uh, The Entity, which is from, I think, 1980. Uh, Barbara Herschel. I've never seen it. Yeah. And I, I don't really want to. It's not nice. <laughs> it's not fun to watch at the very least. <laughs> yeah. And I think I'm always really interested in anything that digs into the sort of the American id, especially as represented by cheap horror movies. The horror movie is, it's interesting. I think if you're a critical theorist and you're looking at like drama, then you're probably going to look at the best examples 
like the the ones that are unusually good. Whereas a critical theorist looking at horror, you don't want to find the exceptions. You want to find the the sort of er story underneath everything. Mm-hmm. And I think what Tchaikovsky does so brilliantly in Outer Space is this is a home invasion, and it is the ultimate home invasion movie. It has everything. It has everything that, like, Panic Room or stuff like that, you know, forget it. This is the one that has, <laughs> that captures the sort of core feeling of what it would be like to have your home invaded by a presence. Yeah, and I think that it's also him using this sort of narrative structure that we are familiar with, unlike most experimental filmmakers, helps to make it a little more approachable. I feel like this is the sort of work that really would let people get into experimental film and even more specifically his body of work. It feels like the kind of thing where you'd be like, okay, I am able to still form, like it's not so overwhelmingly obtuse that I'm not able to form an understanding of what's happening, which is, you know, something that tends to push people away from experimental film. Yeah. It's not dismissible. It's not one of those movies that you would like, see in a museum and walk past and be like, all right, you know, whatever. Um, (laughs) It's so, I mean, first of all, formally, it's so aggressive. It's so insane. Like for anybody watching, do not watch this. If you are epileptic, it is is insanely visually aggressive and disorienting. And I've never seen it in a theater and I can only imagine what kind of experience that would be. It's, and, and I think in that sense, yeah, it's, it's a great introduction because there's a recognizable story. There's recognizable visual tropes and narrative tropes. You'll you'll understand what you're seeing. And it's still one of the best experimental films ever made. So I it's it's kind of like um did you watch the third season of, of Twin Peaks? Yeah. It's kind of like the the way the eighth episode, the 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 Hiroshima sequence. Very much so, yeah. Well, and actually the gas station sequence in that is pulled directly from outer space. Right, when it yeah, when it's first set up and it's just the like short staccato motions and stuff and and the static and everything. It it's really cool to to see that and be like, "Oh, I like recognize this now." <laughs> well, it is it's funny that episode 8 is like a greatest hits of experimental film. It's it's crazy and it's massive. It's it's amazingly done and and Lynch absolutely mm. makes it his own, but it's funny to see like, "Oh, there's Stan Brakhage. Oh, there's Mike right. Darren. Oh, there's Peter Shikowsky." <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, yeah, I think it's a great starter because I can't imagine anyone, especially in a theater, sitting down to watch this and not being affected. It's like music. It reaches into your lizard brain and just <laughs> yanks you. It doesn't enter yeah. through the mind. Absolutely. One other thing that uh, Tchaikovsky's process sort of lends fodder for discussion for is about finding the balance between what is original and what is derived, you know, like sort of where the line for remix or reboot or remake, uh, all of these things and where the credit lies, because we are comprised of our influences and at its core, basically all authorship or authority or origination are tainted because they've already been assembled by a network of derivations and borrowings and reappropriations. And so by using these film scraps to create something original, I think it really does an interesting job of kind of blurring that line and asking you to explore that within yourself in terms of how much has he transformed this work? Is it still 
intrinsically linked to the entity, or is it wholly its own thing now because of what he's managed to do with it? I don't have an answer, but I think that it's just something cool that the his work asks you to explore. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you in that there really is no no such thing as originality in in any meaningful sense. I mean, if you if you look at something like the movie Species and Under the Skin, they are essentially the same core narrative, right? And they both have different things to offer. But Under, the, I mean, I don't know. I can't imagine making a case that Species is a better movie than Under the Skin. <laughs> Under the Skin kind of annihilates uh, Species in the same way that that this movie annihilates the entity and it's i don't know this is this is probably where i get a little too hyperbolic about this movie because <laughs> i fucking love it so much oh, this is what it's all about but this movie contains every major horror trope every major horror story is in this movie because not only is it a home invasion movie it's also a vampire movie it's also a psychic disturbance movie it's also in the way it was made this is the story of Frankenstein. The movie itself is a reanimated corpse. Yeah, well, it's what, like t- almost 20 years later. So it's the, he went in, he dug up this footage, and he... Uh, Ditches it back together frame by frame. Yeah. There, there's this theory in, in horror storytelling called the return of the repressed, which is the idea that horror at its core is just the... I prefer the term revenge of the repressed, but it's just what we have repressed culturally coming back to us right because we can't repress anything that's not how the mind works (laughs) and this movie i mean oh my god because it's also the got the core function of a slasher movie in that what you have is a female presence becoming penetrative yeah which is you know the the core function of a slasher movie is you have a tomboyish girl who becomes more masculine as the movie goes on and then defeats the masculine killer with a penetrating right. object, which is, you know, this is all like getting <laughs> very esoteric. No, we've, we've talked about that very thing in, in a few of our episodes, especially, I'm not sure if you've read uh, Carol J. Clover's yes. Chainsaws. Yeah. Great, great book. Um, and I think that it's it's really fascinating to view slasher movies through that framing. And it, I think it also does help to create sort of an interesting analysis of pairing the inherent sexism that is in a lot of those classic slasher movies with sort of this ultimate female victor triumphing over that male power. It it has this sort of weird dichotomy that is just fascinating to me. It's a powerful thing in in horror movies. One One of the most interesting things about horror movies is that the bulk of them are ideologically and culturally conservative. And not, I don't mean anything to do with the current Republican Party. Right. But it is like, don't have sex, don't smoke weed. Like, <laughs> Yeah, it's more, it's like political theory conservatism, not religious fundamentalism. Right. And they're culturally conservative in large part because they're so cynical. If you look at something like, you know, zombie movies, which for a long time were coded as low income or people of color or whatever the whatever the sort of threat was to our you know little utopia that never (laughs) really existed and the thing that's so cool about that is how those archetypes are so well established that it doesn't take much you just have to nudge them a little bit you know you look at something like night of the living dead is still i'm still stunned every time i watch that movie by how how dark it gets and how it's, I mean, what it, what it does in terms of race is stunning. Yeah. 
and light years ahead of its time. And you could, you can't do that. I mean, you can, I think Blazing Saddles does interesting stuff in that realm, but Blazing Saddles has to do a lot more work to get to that point than Night of the Living Dead does. Horror yeah. is such a great medium for that kind of social, not even like social criticism or, or anything like that, but just a way to talk about how society right. is organized. Definitely. And I think that you are absolutely right in that these sort of archetypes are burned into us sort of in a way at this point. I mean, outer space, I think, and I guess to an extent, the entity, because that is what it's it's using the footage from, understands this. And it sort of does this right away as well. So the movie is in black and white, but you know that you're in for an unsettling ride as soon as these flashing images start slowly focusing in crystallizes into a house and a woman played by Barbara Hershey standing in front of it. Although it's still sort of angled in an unnatural way. um, And you have the creepy music that kicks in as she heads inside. And like you said, so much of this is things that we're familiar with from other horror movies. We say, okay, the way that we're angled behind this woman here we understand that this is sort of like some some sort of stalking presence and the ominous tones that are being used as the score they're all sort of building and piggybacking off of things that we know to be scary things just because we've seen them in other horror movies and they're all really simple so the opening of it you're outside a house that's sort of like flashing into existence and then the first time we see her, we're at a tilted Dutch angle behind her. And then when we go to the doorknob, we're again at that tilted Dutch angle. The use of like extreme variations in tone and brightness and darkness and the use of rhythm. Like the actual, it's such a bracing and complicated movie, but the actual tools that he's using to create the sense of unease are very classic, very simple. Yeah, absolutely. And it does a lot with perspective, a lot of really interesting perspective stuff. Um, as you say, it is using these Dutch angles, the fact that it is that plus black and white. And, uh, you know, it definitely lends sort of this like German expressionist feeling to some of the beginning parts of it. But the, there's a lot of filming from weird angles and like just having the camera be on its side as she walks in through the door. All the while, these images are like bleeding into each other, fading in and out on the various different layers, and the distortions get more and more intense with small movements both from the camera and it like following her hands as she reaches into the drawer. All of these things take on ominous undertones just because of the way that it's filmed. It's really incredible the way that... Nothing has really happened yet. A woman walked into her house and opened a drawer, and we're already terrified. We're like, what? something is standing here and watching her, and the sound design is really great, too. The voices are either completely silent or muffled to the point of incomprehension, which also helps to give it that otherworldly peering through the veil sort of feeling that I think is really interesting. The woman's face starts to take up more and more real estate on the screen. It becomes like disembodied as this alien force stares at her and then becomes the whole screen as her face becomes like a mirror image and then fractures into even more as the distortion becomes more and more frantic and using the fact that we can like see the film reel as it's progressing and using these distortion. It is very interesting to see 
the way that he is using the medium as the message in a way. He's using this film reel and static to communicate the emotion and part of the narrative as well. So she gets grabbed and screams and runs. And all the while it like distorts. And this is where something really interesting happens is that it starts to just repeat this moment. And the fact that we are seeing this from the perspective of the force or the killer or whatever in this sort of Michael Myers-y sort of way, it makes it so much scarier to sort of see this like it feels like an obsession almost the way that it repeats and and cycles that way it feels like this moment of triumph for the force that we are it's our low point and her low point but the perspective that we're from is this is their moment of triumph it's uh, it's just really interesting to me <laughs> um and as you say the as this happens also the music swells and that rhythmic banging that you were talking about it, it gets more and more intense and it happens along with this smashing glass it just it's a very intense moment it sort of reaches this uh, this peak it's it's very cool the film distorts into an unrecognizable mess except for an image here or a motion there and it's just pure aggression with these thuds and yelps and an exploding light bulb and this is where another addition comes in that I really like is it starts incorporating the negative and reversing the color back and forth while the sounds take on that rhythmic pattern. And it flashes back and forth between the image, the negative, and some lightning bolts, or at least something that looks like that. It's really, I mean, this is the moment where you're like, okay, if you have epilepsy, you're in for a bad time. Here. But, but it is so intense and the fact that they're able to build to this moment so quickly i think really speaks to the power of what he's doing in utilizing these tropes that we're so familiar with. yeah i mean it um, starts at such an intense pitch it's such a ballsy move to start your movie at even even a short at that <laughs> level that is that is some high level high level stuff yeah it's it's really wild and it eventually starts to dissolve with the noise becoming softer and the screen um, just primarily becomes the negative of the film stock running with some soft after images popping up in the back. But when it refocuses, it's another like mirror image of the house and the attacks start back up again. Um, but unlike the first time we see this happen, all the distortion stops when the woman goes on the offensive um, and she strikes back and she starts smashing mirrors and she's swinging out with a lamp at the force. Um, and I think that using this like, oh, is this we've seen so much reflection already happening just in terms of um, the way that he's presenting things on screen that sort of having this mirror image of the uh, first attack, I think, is really fascinating and does does having that sort of comparison point or rather the like where the road diverges being able to see both paths i'm curious if that's something that really speaks to you in terms of what makes this so interesting so i have i i have a weird approach to movies i've been told um <laughs> by people i watch movies with especially horror movies in that i am almost always on the side of the monster especially in older movies especially like the old universal movies i am a hundred percent on everybody, all the classic <laughs> monsters except the Invisible Man. The Invisible Man is a psycho, and and that's not interesting to me. 
Yeah. The rest are traumatized individuals who are trying to love but don't know how. And when I watch Outer Space, the first time I watched it, I, I you know, the, the sort of three sections made sense in that way. Now when I watch it, I think, you know, this poor house that is getting invaded by this woman who's, like, to me, it's, a, it's the story of a woman with intense psychological trauma who walks into a house and just sort of unleashes it. Mm. And it, to me, it's the story of the house defending itself. Interesting. Uh, and I am, and I'm rooting for, like the, and part of it, you know, is that shot that we were talking about earlier, that first shot that you see her, it's a low angle on the street, tilted, and she's standing there in front of the house and she seems so much more powerful than the house in that shot. And yeah. to me, it's the, those three sections make sense. But she she goes inside. She's exploring the space. There's tension. There's this sort of rising thing. Then eventually the house sort of defends itself. And that is expressed through like the flashing lights and the negative breaks out and the whole like the, you know, the seizure inducing section of the of the movie, although it's all kind of seizure inducing, to be honest. And then she wins and then she starts eating the house and that like smashing windows and breaking stuff and the then the repetitions and all that is her victory and both i mean you know either reading and many readings are 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 all work (laughs) and that's one of the reasons it's a great piece of art is because you can read it all these different ways for me the thing that's rewarding about the house as protagonist reading is that it allows me to contextualize it in terms of a lot of other horror. Like I said earlier, this is a vampire story. And the famous thing about the vampires is when you let them in, you're fucked. Right. And for a movie that moves so fast, it spends a lot of time on the doorknob. And like, there's like three separate shots of her hand on the outside, the doorknob turning on the inside, her moving inside. Like the crossing of the threshold is a big deal. Definitely. And that's again, you know, the, the idea of a of a home invasion, of a transgression from a dark force that makes what should be most safe to you unsafe. It's it's a, a shattering of the illusion of safety and stability that we all spend so much time generating. Yeah. I mean, it's such a powerful psychological idea, I think, especially for Americans. You look at, like, uh, not just the, the, the current um, GOP platform, but conservative platforms in this country for years have often been about they're going to come and they're going to take your house. Whoever they are, you know, if it's immigrants or, or if it's it's people from the Middle East or whatever sort of boogeyman they've chosen this year. Even just like urban sprawl, like when people f- flee to the suburbs, you know, it's it's yes, I agree. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, you've got a vaguely ethnic quote unquote, all the quotes in the world looking guy who is attacking children and then gets horribly mangled and he's invading yeah. our collective fake white utopia. That's kind of the, one of the core stories in horror. If there's like two or three core stories in horror, the destruction of the suburb, I mean, or like any zombie movie, the opening of um, Dawn of the Dead, uh, the Zack yeah. version, which is still the best thing he's ever done. <laughs> that opening is such a great breakdown of like, you are not safe in your house. This is not, you know, the bargain that you struck with capitalism, where you're like, okay, you're going to work, 
You're going to work the rest of your life. We will keep you safe. We will give you a house. You get to have, you know, a wife or a husband. You get to have kids. Here's the great promise that we give you. Right. It is not as stable as we like to think it is. Uh, and this movie, oh my God, is the most powerful expression of that I've ever seen in my life. It's deeply physically unsettling to me watching this movie. I regretted saying that we would <laughs> pitching it to you because <laughs> like, I'm going to have to watch this fucking thing again. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it makes you feel better, I was also very unsettled watching it. So at least uh, Misery Loves Company, it's very unsettling in a very good way, though. I think that you're absolutely right in terms of what this is managing to accomplish in such a short amount of time and not only accomplish it in terms of like, well, yeah, congrats, you did it, but also accomplish it in terms of like, wow, you did it to a level that is not able to be matched by most things that are done in a more traditional style. There's a little bit more of the movie, some images cut through the, the distortion, all of the woman, although eventually it becomes just images of her eyes, and then three images of her looking in a mirror, and then one, and then just the eyes again, and it fades to black as all the audio becomes a whisper. It's really great. Like I said, it's only 10 minutes, so it's super punchy. And Quinn, we've now reached the part of the podcast where we sum up why this is, in fact, not just a great movie or a great horror movie, but why this is the best horror movie ever made. And uh, I'll let you start us off. Okay. This is the best horror movie ever made because forget about how short it is. Forget about like the formal structures. In, in the amount of time it has, it creates more of the sense of horror. I am more horrified by this movie than I am by any horror movie I've ever seen. More than Texas Chainsaw, more than Audition, more than, you know, Come and See or like whatever genre you want to. This creates the most horror, just like in, in volume. There is the most horror out of this. Right. Yeah. That's kind of that's my pitch. Yeah. Hey, to me, this is the best horror movie ever made because, first of all, I think that Tchaikovsky's whole style, punk as hell. I think that it's really rad what he's doing. And it manages – I'm not going to just dismiss the amount of time that it does it in because I think it is incredibly impressive that it's able to that it's able to tell a complete and visceral story effectively in those 10 minutes when you know I always, always say that um, a movie needs to earn its length and that – this movie, the fact that it it understands that, and it's like, I don't need that length. I know exactly what I'm trying to do, and I'm able to accomplish that in this time. But it doesn't have any bloat, because there's no bloat to have. Um, it's, it's just the visceral reaction that you have to the things that are so fascinating about horror movies to us. The fact that it is utilizing these different story beats and tropes and stuff that we know in such a unique way to me. That's why this is the best horror movie ever made. Quinn, I want to thank you so much for coming on. This was an absolute blast. And I want to make sure that we give you plenty of time to plug anything that you want to shout out or tell people where they'll uh, be able to see it at festivals or anything. So why don't you uh, go ahead and do that? Yeah. So we're, um, we're closing out Fantasia now. I imagine by the time this podcast goes out, Fantasia will probably be over. Yeah, I think so. We are going to be at the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival September 1st through the 9th. We're going to be at the Indie Street Film Festival in New Jersey from the 18th to the 23rd. We've got a couple big, uh, we've got a big UK festival coming up that I can't quite announce, but at the end of October, keep your, keep your eyes out, UK folks. Um, we're going to be in, in, 
Europe uh, a few times, um, and we're also we, you know, again, I can't say definitively, but there may be a wide release by the end of the year for survival skills. And if you see it, if you like it, if you are perhaps interested in. I wonder what this guy would do with deconstructing an 80s teen slasher movie. <laughs> Keep your eyes open next year. I've got uh, feature Ooh. number two coming for you. It's going to be, it's called, all I'll say is the title is Dead Teenagers. Wow. Well, I know that I can't wait for that. Yeah. So I got something to look forward to now. Is there like a, a social place that they can keep an eye on in particular? Yeah. Um, my, uh, production company is called The Monster Show. You can find us on Instagram. You can find Survival Skills on Instagram and Facebook, Survival Skills Movie, that sort of thing. You can find my website online. There's ways to contact me, come dropping a line, say hi. I'm always down to talk about this stuff. Perfect. Well, definitely do all that stuff. And like I said at the beginning, I can't encourage you guys to check out the movie enough. It was really fantastic and uh, my favorite of the festival so far. And I'm not just saying that. So as far as my plugs, you can find the show on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. Um, that username applies to pretty much everything. So Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff. But really, I'm mostly on Twitter. So if you want the good stuff, that's where you'll go to. There's also littlehorrorphl.com, which lets you listen to the podcast right there if you feel like not listening to it on whatever podcast platform you normally use. And uh, links to merch and social, and it has the RSS feed and all that jazz. So and if you are enjoying the show, why not leave us a rating and a review on iTunes because it really helps to spread the word. So that would be great. And that's it for me. Thanks a lot, Quinn. This is a lot of fun. Bye.